Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz. Today on the show, I have a chance to welcome on for the first time the Seahawks beat writer for the Tacoma News Tribune. Talking football leading up to this week one matchup between Seattle and Atlanta. He's Greg Bell, one of the best Seahawks beat writers out there. Greg, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you, Benson. Brandon, Brandon, I'm looking at Benson Mayo's stats when I talk to you. Uh, good to be on. You guys do a lot of great work, and I know you're following quite a strong following. Thank you. Appreciate the work that you do uh, following the team along. You know, we don't get a lot with the preseason with with football. So, you know, we're relying a lot on um, what you guys are seeing in training camp. And you were asking Pete here this last week, the Genevieve Clowney saga, it's finally come to an end. And he goes to the Tennessee Titans. But I think what fans are curious about, and I, I think you were trying to get at this with Pete a little bit on Monday is trying to figure out, you know, did, were the Seahawks really in this toward the end? You know, Seattle had this clear need to improve on the defensive line in the offseason. Did they screw this up? Did Jadevian Clowney just want out of Seattle? What, what's your sense of what happened? Well, I tried to ask Carol, did you up your offer? And, and I did ask him that on Monday. Did you up your offer and, and make a late push with new money? And he said, so while we were until the very end, I've been talking to him the whole time. I've been told the Seahawks did not up their offer. They had the same offer from March until Saturday night when he signed or agreed to sign with Tennessee. It was about $15 million it had for one year. It had incentives that could push it above that. Uh, not too many, but uh, perhaps a million dollars worth of incentives on top of that. Now, reportedly, he's getting $12 million in base salary or so. The Titans with a chance to earn fifteen, which tells me that ultimately it wasn't just money, although it always is. But he also, the Mike Rabel pool was strong here. And uh, he did love his time in Seattle, but he was only here for four months. He signed, he tra- got traded the 1st of September, an injury-filled season. And that's the last half of it after the November 49ers game down in Santa Clara when he injured his core muscle. I don't have to tell you that he missed three of the last five regular season games when he hurt in the playoffs. So he, he was only here a short amount of time, and Mike Rabel carries more sway than Pete Carroll. Mike Vrabel was his linebackers coach with the Houston Texans, and he was the, his defensive coordinator with the Texans in 2017. Of course, Vrabel is now the head coach of Tennessee. Back to the AFC South, and Clowney just decided he wanted to go there and maximize his worth to the league in that situation and scenario in that defense. It'll be more of a 3-4. There's a chance he, it looks like he's going to play a lot more outside linebacker, more to his Houston days which he told us he thought he was more of a 4-3 hand-on-the-ground defensive end. He may not do as much of that with Tennessee, but the familiarity with Mike Rabel and the Seahawks didn't push any harder. We, we can debate and, and criticize that, but they made a choice financially in March what they would spend in one year and in multiple years to Clowney, and they weren't going above it, and they never did. And they didn't break the bank for Everson Griffin, they didn't barely open the bank for Everson Griffin before he signed with about $6 million with Dallas last month. 
and they didn't go any higher with Jadavion Clowney either. We'll, we'll see what becomes of that decision, but they stuck to their decision from March all the way through Saturday. Yeah, and that's what makes me wonder. You, you bring up Everson Griffin if they were really not into that deal because they were a lot more sure that they had the market on Clowney and in terms of his valuation and that they had that nailed. And so they saw that as the move that was coming and, and maybe didn't pursue Griffin maybe as strong as they should have. Well, no doubt the market came back to the Seahawks until it did until the end. And Clowney got what he'd been seeking all these months and he waited for so many months and even through training camp to get what he finally got this weekend. And that's leverage playing one team's offer or two team's offers off Seattle. And once he had multiple competing offers, then he could drive his price a little bit further up than what it was, of course, certainly throughout the early parts of the pandemic when he couldn't go anywhere to take physicals and prove himself to teams. So eventually he got into something of a bidding situation between the Saints, the Titans, and the Seahawks, with the Seahawks never upping their bid, but having a number for the other two teams to shoot for. And he leveraged those other two teams against Seattle and eventually got what he wanted. So the market did change on Seattle, and the Seahawks had it going their way until multiple other suitors joined the fray, and then Clowney got to get a number up close to things being equal with Seattle and chose to go familiarity with money being roughly equal. Well, moving on to guys that are going to be on the team this year. Pete Carroll announced the starting center this week. Ethan Posick getting the gig. And a little bit maybe a surprise considering the fact that they brought in B.J. Finney in the offseason and one of the more higher-priced offensive line moves they made in the offseason. It is, Brandon. If you pay, it's a surprise from before training camp. It's not a surprise once training camp started. I saw nothing. I watched every one of their 17 practices. And after about practice four, the first time they had run on pads, it was Ethan Posick at center throughout. DJ Finney had problems with learning the offense, learning the calls, learning the audibles, the protections, all of the things you have to be right in step with quarterback Russell Wilson right before the snap, uh, changing defenses, disguises, getting the right calls, communicated up and down the line. That's taken for granted in Seattle because they've only had two centers for Russell Wilson, right? Full-time centers. They had Max Unger first, traded him for Jimmy Graham, and then they had Justin Britt. If Britt doesn't rip out his knee in October in Atlanta, he's probably still the center. He was a Pro Bowl alternate, played at a high level, was better than he was as a guard or a tackle for sure, and he was doing well enough that they probably would have absorbed that $11 million cap hit for 2020 and kept him on the team. But then he, re- he blows out his knee, he's approaching 30, the fourth highest cap hit on the team, so they released him. And they signed Finney for $4.5 million guaranteed. That is big money in Seattle's offensive line, as you know. They go cheap there, or at least they've gone cheap for most of the last decade. Dwayne Brown's about the exception. Uh, they have skimped on the offensive line to pay everybody else. The Legion of Boom, Russell Wilson, Bobby Wagner, Doug Baldwin, Tyler Lockett. They have to save money somewhere, and they've chosen to do it on the offensive line. Now, there are philosophical reasons for that between Schneider and his pro football staff. They believe it is a lot harder to find, excuse me, a lot easier to find offensive linemen, college-ready offensive linemen. They can convert into their style, especially with Solari and man on blocking. Easier to do that than at skill positions, for instance. So uh, they they have made that a philosophical choice years ago, and that's why it's a long answer to why it's now Ethan Posick, a failed backup guard and tackle as your new starting center. 
So Finney for four and a half million looks like a mistake right now. Four and a half million guarantee because it's a backup guard in in center. It's not a total shock to those who know BJ Finney. His four years in Pittsburgh, he played left guard more than any position. He only rarely played center. Last year, he played two games there because Marquise Pouncey got suspended in Pittsburgh, and he played really well, well enough to convince the Seahawks that he could do the job. But this training camp was a reminder, Brandon, you can't just plug and play centers and have them start week one in the NFL with a truncated preseason, no preseason games, no OTAs, and no minicamps. It couldn't be done quickly enough for him to assimilate the offense in that short amount of time. I do feel like we're getting some mixed messages, though, because they let go Joey Hunt, who started so many games toward the end of last season. So you think that they have at least enough confidence in B.J. Finney filling the spot there. But then they bring in Justin Britt for for two different visits, and then he goes and visits the Green Bay Packers. So it sounds like he's looking around at a potential gig this year, too. And it would make a lot of sense that he'd come back to Seattle. But having him for two visits and and not signing him, it's I'm curious where they're going here. Well, not signing him after two visits tells you he's not ready physically. And that we're only, what, not even 11 months out since that injury. Right. A lot of players, especially bigger players who are 6'5 or so and 300 plus pounds like Britt is, take 12 months plus to recover from a reconstructive knee surgery. So that tells me he just hasn't been cleared medically by Seattle's doctors when they looked at him twice. I wouldn't rule out him coming back because it'll be a, whoever signs Britt would be at the team's price, not Britt's unlike the situation in up to April. But no doubt, they are trying to get Finney up to speed that he can take that position. That's why he's here, and that's why they're paying him the money they gave him. So we know who's at least starting at center for week one. That's going to be Ethan Posick's job. Do we know who's for sure starting opposite Shaquille Griffin at corner in week one? As long as there's not a positive COVID-19 test, it's going to be Quinn Dunbar. Okay. Dunbar left. He left last week to go to a funeral that he was excused, and he left the, something of the bubble the Seahawks have and just going from their hotels and homes back to the facility and back. Once you leave that and you come back in after the funeral, he comes flies back into the Seattle area from Florida. Now you got to go through three more days of testing for COVID-19. You got to pass all those tests before you can even go back in the building. I, I could go, I could spend the next 20 minutes talking to you about COVID-19 tests. I've had 21 of them in the last 25 days oh, just wow. to watch practices. So the the process is very intricate. And if you miss it and miss days, you have to go back to square one and restart and re-indoctrinate yourself as if you're first reporting again to a camp. So that's where Dunbar was as of Tuesday, getting through that protocol to get back into the building so we could get on the practice. Now, as long as I said it, as long as he can do that before the team leaves Friday, there's no reason to think he's not going to start. Flowers has been there the last few practices into this week, but that's only because Dunbar hasn't been there. Dunbar was the full-time starter for the last week of training camp. It was obvious he had won the job in the day he replaced Flowers when Flowers sprained his ankle, and he hasn't been out of it since. They traded for Dunbar to start. He's going into a contract year. They need to see whether they want to re-sign him, and if that position is going to cost a lot. They need to know if that's money they want to spend. They're not going to waste game weeks having him behind flowers, in my opinion. He got what I would think of as some bad news on Tuesday. And although I don't even know with Quentin Dunbar anymore, because there's this yeah. new evidence out that, uh, that the, the New York Daily News reported on and uh, right. showing some maybe potentially damaging text messages that uh, indicate that maybe 
Dunbar was more involved. I, I, I just don't know what to think with this, Greg. I've covered every day of this and every turn of this, and I don't know what to think about anything in this case. It's bizarre. Uh, I've talked to all sides of it, attorneys, police, prosecutors. Uh, it is, who knows, to be honest. Why, why is new evidence coming out in September for text messages that happened in May? Why would the Broward County State Attorney's Office suddenly have this evidence? Why wasn't it presented before he, that same office decided not to prosecute Dunbar? Let's not forget, it's the same state attorney that the New York Daily News is quoting here who decided not to prosecute Dunbar. Right. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying they have text messages saying he was the orchestrator and director of the robbery and told Baker to do it. Then there are all kinds of questions of if you're a fellow NFL player, would you just listen to Dunbar and go rob people at gunpoint because Dunbar said so? I mean, <laughs> the whole thing is just, it defies logic to begin with that, that they're even at a house party during a pandemic uh, as NFL players with so much to risk. I, I could go on and on of the absurdity, absurdity of this. It does though speak to the fact that the NFL could still suspend him. He right. Dunbar himself has acknowledged that under the NFL and Roger Dell's personal conduct policy, they could say, look, we did our own investigation, which they will do and are already doing. And we came up with this and this and this. And whether you were prosecuted or not, we're suspending you. Jaron Reed can talk about the NFL personal conduct policy when you don't aren't formally charged with anything. So it is bizarre just begins to describe this case. It seemed like he was going to be playing the entire season. It's up to the NFL to decide if this evidence or any evidence that comes up with is enough to suspend him under personal conduct policy. Well, if it's taken this long to get the text messages for the Florida investigation, who knows when it's going to be when the NFL is able to conclude their investigation. So something to watch over the next couple of months. But this Sunday, there's going to be some interesting things to watch with the Seattle Seahawks. And I want to talk about what those things are with you coming up next. Seahawks beat writer Greg Bell joining the show, talking about the Seahawks and Atlanta game coming up. I'm curious how this is going to go, Greg, because, you know, we, we just got done talking about how strange this has been for, for Dunbar's situation. This has been strange just in terms of football and offseason in general. And listening to Pete Carroll on Monday, it sounds like it could be just a very different opening week in terms of which players might get more snap counts. I'm curious if this is something that we're going to see across the board, if we're going to see, you know, more of those fringe players getting snaps in a week one game, if it's going to be primarily with some of the former college coaches who who are familiar with a way of handling this, or if this is just going to be a Pete Carroll thing. I think it's going to be league wide, Brandon. I think that the lack of preseason games, uh, you need to see what your draft picks in particular will do in game situations. Alton Robinson is a case of this. He's a fifth round draft choice in a normal year. He wouldn't probably get a lot of reps and be right away from week one in the rotation of the defensive line, the top eight. He will be in Atlanta. And that's for multiple reasons. One is he had a very good training camp from the week. First days I watched him one-on-one -on -one pass rush drills. He was the most consistent, fast and strongest defensive line. But Bruce Urban was Nobody could block him on spin moves, and there were a lot of issues with the offensive line blocking him one-on-one. -on -one. But Alton Robinson, as far as pure defensive lineman on every down, was perhaps the best one I saw. Benson Mayo was also very fast, faster than I remembered him his first go-around in Seattle. 
But Robinson's going to get what Daryl Taylor's reps are supposed to be. Taylor, of course, is on the non-football injury list, second-round pick, the top rookie pass rusher, and he is nowhere near coming back. Pete Carroll is noticeably tempered when he talks about Taylor. He's always, as we know, very positive talking about people. When you ask about Taylor, he has no words and no encouragement. He's waiting to see. So for now, Robinson is Daryl Taylor. He's a fifth-round pick, been second-round pick reps. Uh, there will be other players like that. Jordan Brooks, to me, from what they've done in training camp, is going to be a nickel linebacker to start with exclusively. He has done next to no first-team base work in training camp. But he will get time, especially in a game against like Matt Ryan and Julio Jones type of offense, that they'll be inside defensive backs more. I think in general they're going to play nickel more this year because Marquise Blair, they trust him more than they trusted Ugo Amadi in the parade of nickel, Jamar Taylor, and King King that they used last year. They really think they have something with a converted strong safety of, of the aggressiveness and size of Marquise Blair to go after bigger slot receivers and, and, and be aggressive against them. And then when teams do try to run in, in against nickel, which a lot of NFL teams like to counter move and go to the run game, the, you have an extra type of strong safety linebacker type against the running player when he's nickelback. So I think you're going to see more nickel. They have to be more nickel than they were last year when they were fewest nickel defense in the league and they were the most base. They're not going to just junk base though, Brandon, because the strength of their defense, I think even with the secondary being so much better, it's still Bobby Wagner, KJ Wright, Bruce Irvin, and now Jordan Brooks, the speed and the experience there at linebacker. They're going to have those linebackers on the field still probably far above the league average in base. I, I do think that's the case. I do think, though, that this game against the Atlanta Falcons, a team that throws the ball in almost more than any other team in the league out there, mm-hmm. uh, this is going to be a test right away to see how that nickel package is going to look on the field, though. Yeah, I think Blair is going to get a lot of playing time. Uh, they will use Dime and Lano Hill as the sixth defensive back quite a bit more than in a normal game. You're right. And Matt Ryan didn't play against them in Atlanta last year in October when the Seahawks won. Uh, held on after taking a big lead early. It was Matt Schaub. Matt Schaub's not starting on Sunday. It's going to be Matt Ryan. He's had great success against the Seahawks. I was looking up his numbers. Last three games, 68%, eight touchdowns, one interception, a 114 passer rating. I mean, his career average is 94. Career rating is 94. And he's had 114 against the Seahawks the last three times he's thrown against them. So they'll be in extra subsets quite a, quite a bit more than I think they will the rest of the season. You brought up a lot of names on defense as, as you were running through those. Who on the defensive side of the ball are Seahawks fans? Should they be most excited to watch in week one? Probably Quentin Dunbar. I mean, he had, I should say Jamal Adams because he is, first of all, Jamal Adams is far more dynamic than safety, maybe even back to Earl Thomas because of how varied they can use him. I'm not saying he's a better player than Earl Thomas was in his prime for these Super Bowl teams, but they will be able to use him in more ways than they use Thomas. Thomas, they basically just said, okay, the back half, back 30 yards of the defense is yours. And it, it allowed Chancellor and the safeties, or Chancellor to play up against the run and against tight ends and allow the corners to play press coverage. The rest of the damn center field, that's yours. Well, they don't have to do that and won't do that with Jamal Adams. They've got Diggs back there to be the free safety center fielder. And Adams will blitz. Adams will play a strong safety linebacker type against the run on early downs. He'll line up just off the shoulder of the defensive end. Uh, you'll see him and Bruce Irvin or KJ Wright, the outside linebackers, almost side by side on certain downs, as if they're extra outside linebackers. 
they will blitz him from all angles. They'll have him guard inside slot receivers, outside wide receivers, tight ends, running backs in the flat. You will see him 33 all over the field and, and using him in ways they rarely use their safety, and it'll change their coverage. They'll do more man. Blair and Adams makes them a more dynamic coverage team and harder to read. Well, even when the Seahawks are at their best, you know this, Brandon, and most people listening to this know this, when they were at their Super Bowl best, the NFL knew what they were doing. They were doing cover three, single high coverage. They're press coveraging. They weren't blitzing a whole lot. Their personnel stayed pretty much the same, and the players were at the same place before the snap pretty much every time, and they just they were just better than anybody else. Well, since that time, when the Legion of Boom went away, Richard Sherman left, Michael Ben and Cliff Avery were gone, they have had to be more varied because they were trying to do all kinds of things to mask some of their deficiencies in talent and, and the players being not as, as good as they used to be here. Well, now they've got superior talent at certain positions, including maybe the best safety in the game in Adams, and they can stay varied. And they don't have to just sit back and cover three or in certain personnel groupings. They can be all over because of the versatility that in particular Blair and Adams gives them. Uh, an off-the-radar off the guy on defense to be excited about is uh, someone I've already mentioned, Alton Robinson. Yeah. 90, 98, nobody's gotten to see him play because there were no preseason games and practice was canceled. And unless you were watching streaming on the Seahawks website every day, you really haven't seen him. <laughs> and he most of that's stretching, Greg. That's, that's about what we get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah I, I hear you. I know all about those restrictions as well. He's gained almost 20 pounds since they drafted him. He did a lot of work in Bellevue with Tracy Ford, his performance center, worked out with some Seahawks. Cliff Averill showed him quite a bit of the, the tricks of the trade at defensive end. And Pete Carroll was talking about how he didn't lose the speed doing that. He's a 4'6 type guy who's still quick as an edge rusher should be and they need him to be, but is stronger than most Leo defensive end types. Uh, they tend to be wiry, long-limbed. Well, this guy has gained up to, he's now 275, 277 yet still has maintained the speed he had at Syracuse. So they think they may have something here with Robinson, and they need him to be. You know, I don't have to go through what they need in the pass rush. Uh, LJ Collier and Rasheen Green and Mayoa and Urban. And I'm writing a story right now about how this relatively no-name pass rush is what's going to have to step up now that they've missed on Clowney and Griffin. Yeah, a lot of hope going into that pass rush this season. Uh, a lot wanna, of hope. Want to flip over to the offensive side of the ball real quick before you go. Uh, we know once the 53-man roster is released, there's always going to be some movement. But then on Tuesday, John Ursua was waived and Penny Hart was added to the active roster. Did something change just since Saturday? I, I think this is a, a roster show game, Brandon. I think two things. One, they may have thought Penny Hart was going to get signed by another team right onto its 53. You, you don't, you can't do as most people listening. know, you can't do practice, direct practice squad to practice squad signing, but you can sign someone off of another team's practice squad and put him right onto your 53. So they could have been protecting Hart, put him on the active roster so no one could sign him. And now the league trend here in the, since cuts last weekend is very few waiver claims because of the lack of preseason games. Scouts didn't get out to stadiums and see and have game film to watch of the bottom third guys on rosters that they could claim off waivers and say, well, yeah, we saw this guy in the third preseason game do this and this, played our coverage the way we played. None of that this year. So a lot of NFL teams are in the dark. Frankly, that is why the Seahawks put a clamp down on what we could show video and description-wise from the sidelines of training camp practices. Mm-hmm. 
They didn't want other teams, Brandon, to pick up what the Alton Robinsons or Penny Hearts or Heslops or Stanleys were doing because they didn't want them to get poached by other teams at the waiver time at the end of the preseason. Sure. They didn't, there are teams. There are teams that do do that. That follow social media and websites and journalist websites with video to watch videos of guys and say, "Well, he's got the hips or the leverage or the, what we need." And they were trying to black out all of that, and uh, that's why you didn't get as much access that we would normally get to avoid um, what we're seeing right now. Only 17 players were claimed in the league at the end of the preseason on final cut day. That's far fewer than normal. So I think they think John Ursu is going to go through, have gone through waivers by the time this airs, and they can get him onto the practice squad. And because practice squads are expanded to 16 this year, and because you can call two up every week to have 55 actors on game day, they could get Ursua back and, and he could still contribute the same way Shaquille Griffin can. Shaquille Griffin, excuse me. Well, as a Seahawks fan, it is Shaquem Griffin that when those cuts came down on the on Saturday, that was a punch to the gut seeing his name on that list. And I know he hasn't had a huge impact, but just I think recognizing him and his brother being such a, a big part of kind of the, the identity of the team uh, in a way, it's it was a little bit tough to take when when I saw him on the on that cut list. I hear you. Uh, I've come to know him and his story and written many times of his upbringing and his bond with his twin brother and what he's done for uh, able-bodied and and uh, alternative athletes. And I saw him do after preseason games, host children who have different limb children as, as he is. Uh, I could write all the time about Shaquem Griffin just being in the NFL, starting with his brother in his very first game at Denver as a rookie. The fact is they thought that he could get through waivers. They didn't think that anyone would claim him. He hasn't played consistently in a defense. He's been especially that just in the last few games of last season became a specialty edge rusher. Before that, he was rarely playing as a linebacker and he's mainly a special teams player. So they rolled the dice that he wouldn't get claimed. He wasn't. And now he can be right back with his brother, same number, same house, same address, same place in the meetings uh, and could be eligible each week to play again as the active call up. So it worked in that regard. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of that throughout the season because of teams just being reluctant to claim players off waivers. Yeah, and uh, I am happy about that. Uh, he's Greg Bell of the Tacoma News Tribune. Follow him on Twitter at GBellSeattle. Uh, while you're there, ignore his Army football takes. Go Navy. And uh, check out his work at thenewstribune.com. Greg, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Brandon. It's dangerous to bring up Navy football after they lost by 52 points in their opener, but you're a brave man. Thank you. It was dangerous. <laughs> it was dangerous, but I, I had to take a shot at Army while I could. <laughs> Good to be on. Good to talk to everyone. Everyone be well. Thank you. A big thanks to Greg Bell of the Tacoma News Tribune for coming on the show and breaking down some of the things we've been seeing in the news this week. If you're looking for more reaction to the John Ursua Penny Hart news, you can go over to fieldgoals.com, follow along there. Also, some of the latest news about the team captains being selected. Nico Thorpe, the special teams captain. Russell Wilson, your offensive captain. And Bobby Wagner, the captain on defense. Follow along throughout the week leading up to the game at fieldgoals.com. Subscribe to the show, sbnation.com slash NFL podcasts. And we will be talking more Seahawks football in the days leading up to Sunday's matchup. Until next time, go Hawks. Go Hawks.